The Athletic. Hello and welcome along to a Ramco F1 Focus, the podcast that aims to get you thinking about Grand Prix racing that little bit differently. This is episode four of our podcast, so if you've missed them previously, make sure to go back and check out our other episodes. And just as in the previous three, I, Tim Sylvie, am joined by my two right-hand men, F1 Stat Supremo Sean, Virtual Statman Kelly, and Norfolk Racing Royalty Alex Brundle. Sean, how's it going? Since we last spoke, we've had no race in Imola, but a belter in Monaco. Are you ready to dazzle us with some stats ahead of the Spanish Grand Prix this weekend? Well, I mean, the thing is, there are many other instances of races that should have happened, could have happened, might nearly have happened, but never happened. And Alex, how are things in your world? Things are great in my world. I'm, I'm either in a race car or I'm shouting at one uh, over a microphone. So uh, I'm very much enjoying life on, on both behind the mic and behind the wheel. So what are we waiting for? Let's get going with focus number one. So here we are then, focus number one, which this week is Sean's stat focus. Sean, we did get a race in Monaco, but we didn't get one in Imola. And I gather it's actually the race that never happened that you want to talk about because there are several interesting examples in history where forces of nature have played havoc with the schedule. Yes, I mean, increasingly so in the 21st century, as sanity has begun to prevail and we started to realise that driving... Uh, Formula One cars when they can't actually cut through the water on the racetrack and are aquaplaning down the straight. Or they simply can't see their hand in front of their face when they're doing 200 miles an hour. It's probably a bad idea and certainly is not racing. I mean, drivers had been saying that for many, many a long year. And finally, those of us, the powers that be, if you will, on the on the sidelines uh, acquiesced to that. Um, there were certain instances in the recent past where uh, other acts of God, not just flooding, uh, came to reshape a race weekend. We think in particular of the Japanese Grand Prix. The 2004 Japanese Grand Prix, there was a typhoon, Ma'on, that hit the racetrack on the Saturday and uh, F1 and the FIA had the advanced uh, sanity to tell everybody to not even attempt to come to the track on Saturday. Uh, it was completely washed out. It wasn't there was never any hope of anything being uh, taking place on the track that day and they rescheduled the qualifying session to sunday morning which is the first time they'd ever done that uh, but we have seen qualifying on sunday morning several other times uh, japan again in 2010 australia 2013 usa in 2015 that really was a washout on the saturday uh, and again an exact rerun of the circumstances of 2004 happened in 2019 at suzuka as well another typhoon hagibis hit the track Everybody was told, don't go to the track on Saturday. There's famously photographs of a lot of the drivers crowded around uh, the PlayStation with Max Verstappen playing FIFA uh, on the Saturday while they waited for everything to pass through. Uh, and they ran qualifying on a Sunday morning. So um, it, it is useful as a sort of force majeure, um, but less so as a permanent addition. But were there occurrences around certain races being stopped and not being restarted? There were several instances of that. Um, and again, you know, Canada 71 is sort of the is the first instance, but there were many examples thereafter. And a lot of them, for the same reason, are sort of forgotten by history um, because they, you know, they red flag the race and then they don't restart it. So in in people's minds, 
it never actually, you know, it just it ran to a checkered flag and they didn't think of anything else. I think in particular of uh, Brazil 1974, which was red flagged due to rain and not restarted. Belgium 1981 was red flagged and not restarted because of weather. There are some more egregious examples, races that we usually... Um, bit dicey, you know, Austria 75 was wet all the way through and it just got wetter still and they red flagged it and Vittorio Brambilla crashed across the finish line because he was so surprised to see the checkered flag and the red flag at the same time um, that he realised, oh, I've won the race, I've also crashed the car. Um, And then Silverstone 75, a very famous one when it looked like it was threatening rain and then finally it dumped on the racetrack and almost everybody went off at Club Corner. I think there's only two cars left on the track by the time they put the red flag out, everybody else was off in the, in the, in the railway sleepers as they were back at Club Corner at Silverstone with Emerson Fittipaldi winning. That was Emerson Fittipaldi's last ever Grand Prix win, incidentally. Um, so, um, yeah, there, were, there, there was also instances where races were red flagged because of the rain and they said, let's not restart it. A, another famous example, of course, Australia 1991. That was a race that was red flagged after 14 laps. They sort of hung around for a bit, thought, no, not going to get any better. And they waved the checkered flag and said, that's all, folks, 14 laps is your lot. The irony of that being that later in the day, it cleared up and they probably could have run a dry race. (laughs) But that wasn't the shortest race ever. There have been shorter ones and it would be amiss of us not to talk about Spa 2021. Surely, Sean, that goes down as one of the shortest races of all time. And for those that might not remember, can you just tell us what happened? Well, it is the shortest race. For the longest time, Australia 1991, um, with its 14 laps, was the shortest. And then we have, now we have a new king of the throne, Spa 2021, the exercise and futility of that afternoon was. And they did try very hard to try and get the race on because, I mean, obviously everyone's there. You want the race to happen and you try and make it happen. But um, it, they, you know, they waited on it and waited on it. It wasn't getting any better. Eventually, they ran the safety car for one lap, put the red flag back out, and they never restarted it. In fact, I think they put it out. I think the race safety car might have run officially for two laps. Um, they then put the red flag out. Um, they don't restart the race. So the, the one lap is the official distance. Now, that therefore gives us some we- really quirky things in the, in the history books because it means that Max Verstappen is the only person in Grand Prix history to lead every lap of a Grand Prix but also only the last lap of a Grand Prix. They're both the same race because there was only one lap. So he led it start to finish by only leading the last lap. There are also officially no retirements in that race. Um, there are officially no pit stops in the race, although people did come into the pits. You know, there, <laughs> officially there weren't any pit stops. And then he had the oddity of Nikita Mazepin setting the fastest lap behind the safety car because he was at the back and basically had the largest run-up in terms of being able to you know, give it a bit of welly, set the fastest lap um, as per timing and scoring. But it was then annulled because they said, basically, this is nonsense. <laughs> How can you have the fastest lap when it's three minutes and 27 seconds? <laughs> um, sorry, we're not counting that. So even that went out as well. So there's some really, really odd things that happened at that Spa 2021 race. Um, and I'm sure anybody who spent an absolute fortune getting out into the middle of the Arden Forest to watch that debacle... <laughs> will be enthused by the fact that they they can be constantly reminded of it anytime they go to the record books. 
And I think that's one of my favourite F1 oddities, that race, an absolutely bizarre set of circumstances. And, and, but a classic racetrack where, it's, it's that racetrack where commentators always say that dreaded line of it's it's raining in one part of the track and not the other. Um, and uh, I, I remember being at Spa one year when they were looking at the radar and umming and ahhing about whether to go out or not. And I just thought, all this technology is great, but you could just put your arm out the front of the pit lane and just see if it's raining you know all these people staring at screens all you have to do is turn behind you and put your arm out and you can feel it for yourself but Sean there were a number of races where they they were affected for other conditions not just weather related or rain or hurricanes or typhoons give us some of the occasions where weather wasn't the reason for races being postponed or cancelled I think a lot of F1 fans when they look if they were ever shown the full ledger of races that were on the calendar at some point and then were cancelled, never took place, having been announced, would be shocked at just how many races there are. Um, and there are some very obscure ones. You know, for instance, I mean, the Moroccan Grand Prix of 1958, that's the only time Formula One has ever raced in Morocco as a championship event. It was on the calendar in subsequent years, but never happened. There were other races like Australia. There was supposed to be an Australian World Championship Grand Prix in 1970 at Warwick Farm. That didn't happen. Um, there was supposed to be a, a Soviet Union Grand Prix. That never happened. So there are many examples of things not taking place, but there are more unusual circumstances than just money and politics. Um, for instance, after the Le Mans disaster of 1955, four of the remaining championship events were cancelled in 1955. And that meant that Juan Manuel Fangio, when he finished second to Sterling Moss at Aintree in 55, that famous side-by-side -side finish of the Mercedes W196, Sterling Moss winning the race at Aintree, Fangio second. Well, Fangio, by that result, had inadvertently become the world champion, but he didn't know on the day because all these the races weren't officially cancelled until after the fact. So... If you retroactively, that was the moment he became champion because he, from that point on, there was no way he could have been caught in the remaining races. One of the most intriguing um, examples of race cancellations came in 1956 and 57 when the Suez crisis was in full swing. For those of you who are of a younger disposition, and bearing in mind we're talking about the mid 50s, that means anybody under the age of about 70, um, the Suez crisis, uh, too long didn't read, big political crisis between the UK, Egypt, Israel, there was a war. There's a, you know, the Suez Canal was closed. They couldn't get oil through, this sort of stuff. That meant that th uh, two races were cancelled in 1956 and three races were cancelled in 1957 uh, because of basically not wanting to use the oil um, that they could get uh, available uh, at that time. There are another couple of examples where uh, the passing of a favourite driver led to the cancellation of an otherwise popular event. Uh, Mexico 1971 didn't take place after the death of Pedro Rodriguez. Um, he died in July of that year. Um, after the death of Ronnie Peterson and then Gunnar Nielsen, there was no Swedish Grand Prix in, in 1979. And in fact, there's never been a Swedish Grand Prix ever since. And it's amazing. I always cite Sweden as a great example of a country that went from being top of the world to just obscurity almost overnight because they had a race-winning driver in Ronnie Peterson in 78. They had Gunnar Nielsen, who was undergoing treatment for cancer. He'd already won a Grand Prix in 77. Both were gone. And then very quick thereafter, there was no race in Sweden and we never, ever went back uh, as a sport. Um, there were uh, other more exciting ones, like the European Grand Prix at Brands Hatch, 1983. 
That was supposed to be a Grand Prix around Flushing Meadows, which is now the site of the US Open Tennis Tournament, formerly Expo 62. There was supposed to be a Grand Prix of Flushing Meadows in New York. That never happened. Just like every other race that Formula One has tried to do in uh, New York has never happened. And we're still waiting. Of course, there was supposed to be one in 2013, I think it was. Um, and uh, yeah, we've still never raced in New York as a sport. Formula E uh, beat Formula One to the punch in that regard. And then a really weird one, Canada 1987. I give you this one. This was a dispute between the two big brewers in Canada, Labatt and Molson. And they had a set two, a rumble, a contretemps, if you will, about who had sponsorship rights for what. And it ended up with such a Barney that there ended up being no race at all in Canada in 1987. Um, so that was a, a very unusual cancellation indeed, because you basically got two, two companies arguing over who's paying for it. No, we're paying for it. No, we're paying for it. No, 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 we want to pay for it. Normally it's the other way around. You pay for it. This was a race that was cancelled because both of them wanted to pay for it. <laughs> okay, Sean, but what about postponements rather than cancellations? What examples have we got there? Well, the one everyone always cites is Spa 1985. And what a story we had there. You mentioned earlier how Spa can be raining at one end, not the other. You know, stick your hand under the out of the garage. Is it raining? Is it not raining? This sort of stuff. Well, in 1985, the organisers decided that they would resurface the racetrack with this then, you know, cutting edge material that would reduce. I think it was it was either to improve grip in the wet or to reduce spray, or maybe it was both. Um, but they, they did this, but they, it got delayed because of the weather, ironically. Uh, it, got, it, was, it, was a, it was a bad winter in Belgium. I mean, it's a bad winter at Spa most winters, but it was obviously an unduly bad winter. And they only got this surface finished what, two weeks before the race. Now, I'm not an expert in construction, but I am told that you need to give it a little bit of time uh, once you've actually surfaced it to, to let it all settle and be ready for racing. Well, they all went out, all the, the team showed up, they all went out on Friday, they did the Friday running. And remember, this is the mid-1980s, when the cars are one and a half litre turbocharged behemoths. They've all got a thousand plus horsepower at their, at their fingertips in qualifying. The, the turbo cars started to churn up the track, literally from, you know, the rear, rear wheels of these cars. Was with qualifying tires, remember, so extra grip, extra grip from those as well, was literally churning up the racetrack. Um, so it was starting to look like, um, you know, like a sandy beach of tarmac. So uh, by the end of that day, they'd broken the track, effectively. Well, uh, Bernie got them all gathered around and Jean-Marie Balestra and all that stuff, and it was all a big hullabaloo. And they decided they can't race. So they postponed the F1 race, uh, but tried to get all the other races out the way, which are less damaging to the track. Um, and they had to reschedule the Belgian Grand Prix for September. I think it was in, I think it was supposed to be in June of that year or May. I can't remember. Um, so they came back in September and that led to this very odd situation with the entry list for that race. Because at the previous Grand Prix at Monza, Alan Jones and the Beatrice Haas Lola, not the, not the current Haas, but the first, the first Haas that we had in Formula One, had showed up made their Grand Prix debut back in the mid-80s when teams would show up mid-season to make the debut. They then were not allowed to enter the Belgian Grand Prix. Why? Because the Belgian Grand Prix originally was supposed to take place back in June or whenever it was, and they weren't on the entry list. So they'd made their debut and then they were told, sorry, mate, you can't race. You can't come to this race because this race was supposed to be happening months ago and you weren't here. So you're out. Um, so that was a strange situation 
uh, on its own. So that you, sometimes postponements can create some oddities. The only other, well, I say sometimes, we've only had really two bona fide postponements. The other one was in 1995 at the Pacific Grand Prix in Aida. In 94 and 95, there was two races in Japan. There was Suzuka and Aida. Putting aside the fact that Aida was considered too small and too slow, even for Japanese Formula Nippon, but they could run a Formula One race. Fine, okay. Um, in 94, Michael Schumacher had won. In 95, it's supposed to run as an early season race because, of course, Suzuka is at the end of the season. There was then the Great Hanshin Earthquake, which was centered around Kobe, which was the, the region of Japan where the racetrack was. Couldn't run the race. Much the same. It brings us back to the Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix, in fact, because it was a case of, look, the, the racetrack itself could run the race, but we need the emergency authorities and we need to divert the resources to the people who need it most. We mustn't run this race. So they postponed it and ran it as a double header back to back with the Japanese Grand Prix. So we had two races in Japan on consecutive weekends. Um, which, even stranger was the next two races were both in Australia. It was the last round of 95, the first race in 96. So we had four, we had four consecutive races in two countries. Um, Michael Schumacher won that Pacific Grand Prix in 1995, and that was actually the race in which he won his second world championship. So uh, that, Formula One never went back there, but there was certainly quite a story, both sporting and otherwise, about that 1995 Pacific Grand Prix. Wow. Love that. Love that. Thank you, Sean, for proving that you don't need to have a race to actually have taken place to drop some gargantuan stat bombs on us. And remember, everyone, if you want to comment on anything Sean, Alex, or myself have to say, drop us a line on social media using hashtag AramcoF1Focus. Right, now it's time for Alex to separate the understeer from the oversteer in his performance focus. So, Alex, something a bit different from you this week. Tell us what you've got for us. Well, uh, we've been so specific to the races which have been occurring, but I I'd like to dive a little bit into the psychology of a, of a winning Formula One driver. And something really jumped out at me, Tim, and, and I believe you you've got the quote for us, something which Max Verstappen said just a few weeks back, which I think gives us a real insight into his psychology and some of the pressures, some of the perhaps the unseen pressures that drivers are under. I do indeed. So, and I quote, I do like racing. I do like winning. I know that, of course, there is a salary and everything and you have a good life. But is it actually a good life? Sometimes you get to a point in your career where maybe you want to do other stuff. A fairly loaded statement there from Max. Alex, what was it about this quote that really stood out for you? I think it's an interesting one because we, we carry this. The Formula One is the dream, isn't it? For so many young drivers, young people who, uh, you know, it's one of those astronaut careers. Uh, I, I would like to be, you know, an astronaut, a doctor, a pop star, a Formula One driver. Um, and we sort of blanket assume that it comes with this incredible lifestyle it comes with this incredible opportunity to drive these fabulous cars all over the world there's this perception that drivers cannot be having a difficult time there is no possible way they can be having a difficult time and i i, I wanted to try to explain why that that quotation that from where that feeling emanates 
Yeah, and and there is this perception in the public of oh, you, you poor little racing driver, you know, life's so hard for you and your private jet and everything else. Should fans uh, like us be taking a softer stance on Formula One racing drivers, and is it those sorts of pressures from the public that actually does make it hard for them? I think there are two factors to this, or, or two positions. Firstly, there's the 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 route that those drivers have taken coming up through the ranks. You know, a driver like Max Verstappen has been, since he was a very, very young man, week by week by week, accountable for his performance, has had his life presented to him on a piece of paper and the prospects for his life presented to him on a piece of paper weekend by weekend, which changes your psychology. Formula One drivers these days have never had more public scrutiny. We're dealing with one of the biggest audiences that have ever watched Formula One. They also have never had greater access uh, granted to them from the public through things like social media, uh, through you know activities to bring fans closer to the sport, which I think is a is a fantastic thing. I think we do have to be mindful of that in the way that we treat them, in the stances that we make, and the teams really do have to protect them. It's hard as a public to put ourselves in the position of those drivers being treated basically like you know objects uh given our given you know verstappen hamilton hamilton did this verstappen did that they're basically treated like objects by the named by their second name and uh, and it does i believe have a psychological effect on those drivers especially those drivers like max verstappen starting out in formula 1 when he's 17 years old you've got to wonder if that will eventually burn him out as a sportsman do you think do you think that's likely to happen? I mean, if it, should we be worried about quotes like this? He's saying sometimes you get to a point in your career maybe you want to do other stuff. Do you think this is the first signs of him feeling that burnout and thinking, well, there is life after motorsport. What am I going to do next? Is he on the way out? Yeah, I mean, to keep that pinnacle of performance, uh, there's always this assumption that you know because we see it so much, and I think. We as, as, as broadcasters have a, a great responsibility here to try to explain the challenge of jumping into a, a, a Formula One car. And there's often the temptation to, to be macho, to be bravado about how difficult it is to just jump in a Formula One car and perform. And, and that leads to a certain sort of flippance about how hard it is to be on that edge of performance all the time, how much mental energy it takes, how much psychological strife it takes for the, for these drivers to actually achieve this. And, and I believe that that, you know, perception that anybody can just jump in these race cars and do this job from the public, having it you know, left to them in such a way leads to leads to perhaps a, a difficult a difficult relationship with these often young sports people that can potentially lead to that little bit of burnout that that we're discussing. Alex, one of the things that occurs to me from the outside is that you spend a tremendous amount of time not driving. Like so, almost ninety nine percent of your job is not actually the driving part. That's just the little one percent on the end. And I've met other drivers down the years who fell out of racing because they spent so much time finding money and dealing with trying to get budgets together um, that the driving almost 
dare I say it, no pun intended, took a back seat to everything else. Um, what's your experience of that? Well, it happens more and more. You know, I have the, the great pleasure of, of, of commentary and broadcast on Formula 2 and Formula 3, uh, looking into some of the costs involved, looking into some of the difficulty even to get, you know, bums in seats of those cars um, and, and how much is involved. I mean, as, as a driver um, throughout multiple years of my career, the moment I uh, have stepped out of the car in the final race of the year is the moment I've started with my PowerPoint presentations, PDF documents, meetings, discussions, contracts, and so on and so forth. Um, there's no, there's no union to protect racing drivers. There's no, uh, nobody's responsible for 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 if these contracts, these deals actually happen absolutely everything falls to the feet of these young people their families and maybe if they if they deem it uh, necessary to pay one and find one who is of the correct uh, stance and of the correct integrity their managers um so by the time you've arrived at formula one you know as a, as a young racing driver you've seen probably 10 if you've done one year on year at, at a minimum, you've seen probably 10 heavyweight contracts with, you know, six or seven figure numbers in them uh, and signed the, on the dotted line and taken that risk and taken that responsibility. And I do think it's a really big deal. Even before these drivers make Formula One, uh, the psychological predisposition to 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 risk is is massively skewed on what you know, normal young people and normal people in general deal with. Yeah. And you've, you've got to be a, a businessman and a racing driver, haven't you? You talk about, you know, even before you get to Formula One there, there's even at karting levels, you can spend £100,000 a year in karting alone, let alone getting up sort of F3, F2 levels. And there's, there's a driver I used to manage in Formula One years ago, sort of 2012, 2013, and he wouldn't mind me saying that at the time he had to pay £11 million for a back of the grid seat where he literally poodled around at the back of the grid. And that was not uncommon. And and that's a small figure compared to some of the figures that have happened in more recent history. So it's incredibly difficult challenge for them. Do Why do you think there is this perception, though, that Joe Bloggs could just hop in a car and go two tenths off Lewis Hamilton with the right equipment? It's really interesting, isn't it? Because... I mean, the analogy I always draw is, you know, put me in the ring with even my weight. I'd probably be featherweight, I would have thought. Um, boxing. Uh, Don't bo do yourself an injustice. <laughs> You'd be at least a, at least a middleweight. I think, I think they might do me an injustice very, very quickly. But they, you know, put, put, put yourself in the ring with a, with a boxing champion, even at sort of a, a, a domestic level. Or, you know, if you went down, if you went, you know, down the high street and asked everyone in your local high street how do you think you'd get on as centre forward for England they'd go <laughs> yeah. you know I, I couldn't even you know I, I, would, I wouldn't last five minutes but then there's this weird thing in motorsport uh, you know if you walk down the high street how close do you think you could get to Lewis Hamilton and you know you get this sense that people would say well you know for a couple of seconds a couple of seconds you know after a few laps the right answer is, do you think you could get Lewis Hamilton's car out of the pit lane and how many attempts do you think it would take you? 
Um, and I do think that we do the sport a disservice as journalists, honestly, uh, in not explaining how difficult that is. Uh, and I do think that we are, you know, for example, in explaining the costs, in explaining the, uh, you know, some of the financial difficulties, we do give the implication that you pays your money, you takes your choice, you know, towards towards the midfield and the back of Formula 2, Formula 3 and Formula 1. What needs expressing, I believe, and what would lead to, I think, a greater feeling of sort of reverence and a greater enjoyment of the sport from everyone is a recognition that even though you've got to find your money, it's like quite hard to be on the pace <laughs> as well. It's, it's a sport that you have to give your entire existence to uh, and find the money in order to achieve. And and that's a tough thing to communicate. But, you know, looking specifically at, at, at Max Verstappen, though, his funding all the way through has been uh, Red Bull related. That pressure uh, is something which is not to be underestimated. And that pressure from such a young age, I think the own, his only... A comparison really in in that way is Lewis Hamilton who had a very similar path from from McLaren uh moving uh moving on uh through his junior career and you do wonder if that you know while you're forming psychologically while you're discovering yourself as a person uh having that weekend on weekend pressure how much that changes you and how much you're actually going to be able to adapt then to normal life after you've finished in Formula One. You mentioned some of the pressures there that the drivers face, and there, there are numerous pressures that Formula One drivers have to put up with, whether it be pressure from journalists and media, social media opinion, you know, the Twitter mobocracy, uh, teammate pressures, and you look at the likes of, you know, Verstappen and Perez at the moment, team bosses pressures, the likes of, you know, the Red Bull driver program, which has its own pressures that come with it. Um, the pressure of making it to Formula One um, and, and then having to perform. And you look at the likes of Nick DeVries at the moment. What are some of those pressures in a little more detail, Alex? And, and how much do they affect people? And do they even touch the sides of people like Verstappen? He seems so level-headed and cool. Do these pressures get to him? Well, of course, we can complain a lot about you know being you know it being it being tough, but we're also our own worst enemy in 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 the motorsport paddock because of course the first thing you do when you're when you're in a single seater team and you're not working with your teammate as we do in the, the sport well you are working with them but you're also that's also the first person you need to be the first thing we'll try to do is 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 probe for weakness you know and and those are and those are the things that that you're looking to do and that personality clash that uh, meeting of the minds between two teammates and who has the stronger psychology like for example when you take uh, Verstappen and all of the teammates he's had and then you look at the character of Sergio Perez and how he's been able to deal with that um, probably better than any other teammate is it, it's very indicative I think of the kind of character you need to be in order to deal with that psychological pressure uh, drivers in that environment who are able to deal with that are very much of a type they tend to be quite uh matter of fact quite assertive quite dead 
to other people's opinion, which I think is something you can see in the way that Max Verstappen goes about his motorsport, in the way that Max Verstappen answers questions and and, and deals with the media. They're often accused of being quite uh, arrogant or, or ignorant to other people's opinion, but actually I think as soon as you open that door... Um, as a professional race car driver, there are so many opinions available in the world of Formula One that it'd be like it'd be like putting a dent in the Hoover Dam. The 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 so much opinion and and assertion would come flooding through that actually I think those drivers have realised you can't even you know nudge the gate open otherwise the sheep will come flooding through. So those kind of characters tend to be completely averse to uh, to the media type of character which are which are quite forthcoming and, and and quite sort of information sharing they tend to be quite closed off and, and focused which is always a very interesting thing when you prop uh, a microphone under a driver's nose I'm, I'm curious um, to get your personal opinion on this um, where you know you look at someone like Max Verstappen like I said very cool head um, probably can deal with a lot of things by himself. There are other drivers, and I was lucky enough to talk to Roman Grosjean the other day, who has and has for a number of years had a mind performance coach. Do, do you think, um, from your perspective, that those kind of tools, like mind performance coach, is is that a valuable resource to help deal with some of these pressures? Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, from very early in my career, I, I uh, to undertook concentration training, would be completely lost without it. Um, to... to to try and focus in and block out everything else. but And especially if you are one of those drivers like Roman Grosjean, who's more of a forthcoming character, it can be really tough to take that sort of cold, calculated approach. I mean, uh, I, I won't name any names, um, but there are uh, two drivers I've spoken to uh, very closely, one who's my teammate in in another guys, and uh, and one I know uh, very well from from a from a friendship perspective, uh, who simply will openly say that they psychologically couldn't cope with Formula One, uh, and that was what held them back um, in a, in a Formula One car. They were absolutely capable of dealing with they were absolutely capable of dealing with the car they were absolutely capable of driving the laps testing went brilliantly the 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 performance and the engineering side went brilliantly but the pure psychological pressure from a from a focus perspective was not available to them because they simply weren't the right character and i do think you see those drivers for example like roman grosjean has done go away and perform in other series. You know, a little bit like, I mean, you've drawn the example of Nick DeVries there, um, who has performed in multiple other series where the scrutiny is not quite as great. And that's why, and then comes into Formula One and has a little bit more of a difficult time. And that's why it's such a roll of the dice the first time you jump in an F1 car, because it's its own thing, isn't it? Um, you know, we're not doing a podcast uh, about Formula E this week. We're not doing a podcast about WEC this week. We're doing a podcast about Formula One because the masses are interested in Formula One, which changes the way that the race tracks, the race teams and the race events operate. 
I, I want to ask you a little bit more about just bring, again dragging it back to Verstappen and Red Bull. So Red Bull have had this sort of notorious reputation for sink or swim, um, and they bring bring drivers through their program. And if you're a Max Verstappen, everything's hunky dory. You, you're going to do great, and you know keep winning, fantastic. If you come in though, and you're up against Max Verstappen, and you've got a role to play, and you don't fulfil that role, you can very quickly find yourself in a bit of bother. Is that a good thing for driver development? I mean, is that sort of sink or swim mentality a positive? The the proof is in the pudding, I think, for them. Um, you know, they are, they have been, they have found Max. They found Max by by hook or by crook. I mean, uh, they they call it a crucible. It is a it is a massively pressurizing scenario. The question, though, I would ask is is more uh, from a from a marketing perspective as much or a pr perspective as much as anything uh, and it's and it interests me that the audience themselves don't make more noise about the ones that fall away about the ones that fall behind uh, about the drivers who have given their absolute life to uh, to that program signed signed everything away and then are unceremoniously ditched uh, we, you know, as a race car driver and as a and as a broadcaster in the feeder series, I, f- I see them fall by the wayside and I see a little bit more of the collateral damage. And I do wonder if from a from a, 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 a more of a human P- and, a, and a PR perspective, that's the right thing to do from a racing perspective. You can't argue with results. Well, I think um, despite what Max has said in that quote that we mentioned at the beginning of this segment um, about doing other stuff, I think it's fair to say that he'll be around for a few more years to come and continue to win many, many more championships. Alex, let's leave it there for now. Thank you as ever. Very thought-provoking performance focus from you. I know I'll be watching the Verstappen-Perez title battle with fresh eyes going forwards. Well, that's about it for today. This podcast is brought to you by Aramco, powered by How, and we'll be back with you again soon. In the meantime, be sure to like, follow, or subscribe to the Race F1 Tech Show podcast feed to ensure you never miss an episode of that podcast or this one. Alex, more racing on the cards in the next few weeks? Oh, I've loved the Nürburgring 24 hours, but I need a bit of a rest now. Uh, so I'm going to have one, and then I'll be back in the F2 and F3 combox for Silverstone. Sounds great. And Sean, off to Spain, I presume. Yes, sir. Got everything in the suitcase. Got to get the bus to Barcelona from here in Monaco, if anybody knows where I can take it from. Terrific stuff. Thank you both as ever for joining me. Until next time, it's goodbye from Sean. Bye. Goodbye from Alex. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. The Athletic.